Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So again, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. I've entitled this message, Eternal Hope. Uh, I feel like today in this, this, this world that we live in, hope is something that has uh, lost on us a little bit. Last week, we t- I, I preached through uh, Luke chapter 9, and I ex- kind of went through this idea of death in the Christian experience, death in the Christian walk, that as a Christian, Jesus asks us to do two things before we can follow him, or why, when we make the decision to follow him, to, to deny ourselves and then pick up our cross and follow him. And the cross represented death. And so we must, as Christians, to be a follower of Christ, we have to put things to death in our life. And if we don't put things to death in our life, and then we're just waiting for a moment in time to explode like a ticking time bomb, and then we're going to have to deal with the consequences of our inability just to handle the sin that is rooted deep into our lives. That's what we talked about last week. But today I want to use 1 Peter. We're going to walk straight through 1 all the way to verse 25. And I want to use it to explore the idea that what we have in Jesus and this message is this, this eternal hope. Because again, hope is a term that is just flippantly used today in, in, in our time. It's, it's over the course of human history. It's transliteration, if you want to say. It's, it's just lost its true meaning. It's become more of a, if you look at the, the, the definition of hope, it's, it's a desire for something to happen and not necessarily an expectation. It's like, you know, you're struggling in life and you don't think you have enough money, so you're thinking, man, I sure hope I get a raise. Or you have some sort of illness or disease that's crippling your body and you think to yourself, man, I sure hope that one day I'm made well. But hope in the Bible, for just looking at the Bible alone, and we're using it in the context of the entire Bible, not just the New Testament understanding, but the Old Testament itself uses multiple words for hope. This is very common in the Hebrew. And it has two, like not two main reasons, but these are, these are two ways you can define hope in the Old Testament. One way is to say it is to wait or look forward with eager expectation. This is the type of hope that says that we understand the promises of God. Like, we understand the Bible, we understand his promises, and we wait on him to do the thing that he says he's going to do. And there's another type of hope in the Old Testament, because there's a confidence built in that hope. There's another type. And it says that this hope is a solid ground of expectation for the righteous. And as such, we dedicate or we look at that hope and we give it towards God. So this type of hope says that our foundation, the very core of who we are as believers in God, is grounded in his truth and hopeful for the things to come. So in this type of hope, there's strength. You have confidence and strength all built into this concept of hope. So as we walk through 1 Peter, let's let that type of hope be on our frontal lobe, so to speak, in the front of our mind. Because in a world that seems like it's lost all hope, what better message do we have for it today than one that is eternal? As, and so as it says, we eagerly wait with expectation, and that expectation is grounded in God and God alone. So let's read 1 Peter 
we're going to do is read a little bit, talk a little bit, read some more, talk some more. So we're just going to read the first two verses right now. First Peter 1, this is the greeting. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace multiply to you. It was funny, last night, I've, I've had a struggle the last couple of days. I got my second COVID shot, and uh, late Friday night, and about 11.30 in the morning, that night, I was woken up by those the body aches, and I didn't sleep the rest of the night. So I, I was rough yesterday. And I was going through this with my wife uh, last night, and I had her read that out loud, and her reaction was, whew, that's thick. I mean, just in ver- quick two verses, Peter is letting you know right up front, this is not going to be a milk-type letter. We're gonna, he's going to give us some meat, something that we have to chew on. And so in the very first verse, the very first words, it says, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this lets you know right off the bat who he is, the author, but also the level of authority by which he's about to make the claims in his letter. So for those who maybe didn't grow up in church and maybe haven't read their Bibles, Peter was an apostle of Jesus. He was one of his closest friends. I mean, he was in the Jesus' little inner circle of the three. And Jesus, we read this last week and I didn't go through it, but Jesus, after in Matthew, I read Luke 9, but in Matthew, this, telling this similar story, when Jesus says, right before he says, pick up my, your cross and follow me, they have this discussion about who the disciples say Jesus is. And, Jesus, and Paul says, you are the Christ of God. And Jesus said, it's good for you to say this because it was re- revealed to you by the Spirit. And I'm going to, you, Peter, are the rock by which I'm going to build my church. And even the gates of hell cannot defeat it will not prevail against it. This is Peter who's writing this letter. And so apostle, though, like what is an apostle? For those, again, who maybe didn't grow up in church, not sure what that term means or that title. An apostle, if you want to just look at the the straight uh, definition of it, means ambassador, but they are ambassadors, in essence, for the gospel. And in the gospels, you see that Jesus appointed the 12 disciples. He called them apostles, and he sent them out, and he gave them authority to cast out demons and heal the sick. And so they were then later, after Jesus' death, you have one missing apostle because Judas hung himself, and then they, they pray and they come together and they decide Matthias is going to take over Ju- Judas's spot. So you have the 12 disciples who then become apostles, and then their mission that's given to them at the Great Commission as Jesus then goes to heaven is to then take the message, the teachings of Jesus, and then spread that message and mission to the rest of the world. And so then Jesus later calls Paul on the road to Damascus, and later, Paul later becomes an apostle. And while Christians today, we have a similar responsibility to send out that message of the gospel to all the nations, um, the authority and our responsibility is a little bit different, right? Um, in the New Testament, apostles have the authority to write scriptures, and then the, also the, the, the mission, the authority to go build up the church and raise up new leaders, So my takeaway from just this one word, apostle, is that we need to be careful in the current world when we use titles for people. Because titles in the New Testament meant so much. It gave people authority to do certain things. And when people today walk around and they call themselves an apostle, I'm not saying that person's in sin. That's not what I'm saying today. I'm saying for me, it's a red flag. 
that maybe that person is giving themselves a title that Jesus, who called and appointed these people, did in the New Testament. But, ah, I struggled with that. So just be careful when people go around and they carry a big stick and they want those titles to be known in front of their name because it speaks to me on at least a red flag level that there's a potential issue there with pride, that they're looking for a title, not humility. So, but Paul doesn't say, he continues on here and he says in verse one, to those who are the elect exiles. Now, the word elect, I know in the church kind of gets a bad rap sometimes, but this word elect is used in the New Testament to signify someone called by God. Uh, the Greek word eklektos means chosen. And if you look at the way that we use that phrase in Greek and then Latin and then on to the English, that's where we get the term elect. And so you'll see in the New Testament, and this happens in the, the Gospels, it happens in James, it's all over the New Testament, this idea of the elect or the chosen. But I don't want us to think that the idea of the elect is just a New Testament phrase. God choosing or electing people for his own purpose and specific task goes all the way back to the Old Testament, beginning in, beginning in Genesis. Abraham was certainly chosen and plucked out to a certain purpose. Moses was called out of the people of Israel to do a very specific task. Later on, the people of Israel are called the chosen people of Israel. Out of all the other nations in the world, God says, you are going to be my chosen people. He certainly called and appointed prophets. He certainly called elected kings. And then later, Israel, again, is chosen as God's chosen people. And then we see in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles taking this idea of the chosen, the elect, and they, he grafts the Gentiles into the body of Israel. You see that in Romans chapter 11. So the elect... I don't want to get into the theological idea of election, but the term elect is a biblical theme, not just some theological point. So who are these exiles that he's talking about, the elect exiles? Well, again, Peter is using an Old Testament idea, Old Testament thought, language, when he's speaking to predominantly Gentiles living in this Asia Minor um, area. So if you can throw that, that image on there for me. So Asia Minor, this is just north of what we would actually consider the Babylonian Empire. So in the Old Testament, you have the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires come in and they take out Israel on two separate times and then they send the people of Israel into exile. And the Babylonian Empire is just south of Asia Minor. So these cities that, that Paul, I'm sorry, Peter is speaking to, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, these are not Jewish people. They could be mixed Jewish people because when the Babylonians and the Assyrians take people into exile, they didn't always, like one of the ways Assyrians did to people is when they took you into exile, that then they would then mix you into different populations so that they could breed out the bloodline of whatever country they just inhabited. So this area was likely inhabited by mostly Gentiles, but potentially Jewish people as well. So again, what he's doing is he's bringing over the Old Testament theme. And this is, exiles didn't just start with the idea of the Syrians and the Babylonians. Who were the first two people to be exiled from their homeland in the Bible? Adam and Eve. Imagine Adam and Eve being exiled from their place in the first night that they're, they're taken out of the garden. I imagine them sitting around going, this is not where I'm supposed to be. Maybe there was a storm or something happened that night. 
and they were outside the garden, and they thought to themselves, I'm not in my home. I am not where I'm supposed to be. And what Peter's doing here, he's making the claim, too, that the body of Christ, the Gentiles, those who make up the body of Christ, are exiles of our homeland. That we are foreigners. You can take that word exiles and you can translate it different ways in different versions of your Bible. You may see foreigners, you may see sojourners, and in another way is exiles. Because we can be foreigners in our own homes, but also be like we feel like we're in our own house. And the writer of Hebrews eleven thirteen, when speaking of the hall of faith, says this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Certainly, this is, that was the old, that, that was the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews speaking of the hall of fame or the hall of faith of the Old Testament, but certainly that same idea applies to all the thousands and millions of Christians who have died waiting for the promise that is Jesus returning. So we are exiles living in a land that is not our own. And on a deeper level, Peter is saying and making the claim that we are exiles in our own bodies. Because the Bible also teaches us that our souls, in Psalms it says our soul waits on the Lord. Paul, Paul goes through how our flesh is contrary to that of our spirit. So if you're a Christian living in today's time and you feel like there's something off, right? There's a, there's a contradiction in the way we're supposed to live compared to the earth, and you just don't feel like you fit in, well, that's kind of how this thing works, right? We're not where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be in oneness with the Father in the garden, and we're not. So we are exiles. That natural feeling of just being outside of our normal is just another element of a broken world. So just as we are exiles and wanderers and sojourners and foreigners in this land, until we die or until Jesus comes back, Peter reminds us, that's, well, he's going to tell us, though you're exiles, I get it, but that's not how you're supposed to live. So let's pick up in verse 3 and go through verse 12. <clears throat> Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. And concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or the time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. If it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
when I said this was going to be meat, not milk, that is, that's almost, Sean and I were talking before service, this little section here is almost like Paul in Ephesians 1. It's like a stream of consciousness. He's just like, man, he's just talking about Jesus and the good things that we have in God and in Jesus, and it's just coming out of his heart, and it's almost like one sentence. So let's just break that down. Because what I would, if I could, man, I wish I could do this. I wish I could like have like it on the screen and I could just draw a line straight through verse three to verse eight. Because what Jesus is saying here, right? That God, through, I'm not Jesus saying here, what Paul, Peter is saying is that God through Jesus has caused us to be born again into a living hope. So going back to that earlier definition of hope, the hope that we're supposed to have is supposed to be living and active. It is eagerly waiting expectation. It's like we're on the, on the edge of our seat at our favorite movie, all right? It's like a child on Christmas morning. It's like me, an Alabama fan, watching the, my favorite football team play football, and I, I just know great things are about to happen. Nobody got that. That's okay. That would have killed in Alabama. That would have actually killed. That's okay, though. And what is this living and active hope? What is the thing that we're supposed to be hoping in? It's that Jesus, in Jesus, we have an inheritance that is three things. Imperishable, meaning it cannot die or end. It's undefiled, meaning it's pure. And it's unfading. It will not relent. And so what is this inheritance that we have? And just kind of, we're walking through three to eight. Well, this is the thing that are we hope in. What is this thing? It's our salvation. So that salvation, though, we like to think that our salvation is protected by our good deeds. Our salvation is protected by our ability to serve God. Our, our, our salvation is, is built and grounded in our good works. We talked about that last week. We'll go into a little bit more today, but no, it doesn't say that here. What does it say that our salvation is being guard, guarded by the power of God? That's what your salvation is being guarded by. So the Christian walk, I'm sorry, let's get to hell a little bit. So what in this little section, what we have here is we have hope, we have security, we have our protection, and we have salvation all in Christ Jesus. But Peter also recognizes something because he understands his life. He understands what he's walked through and he saw Jesus and the disciples walk through. So he recognizes that by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you are going to face certain level of trials. It's going to happen. The Christian walk will not be without trials or some level of tribulation. If your life is hunky-dory because you're a Christian, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, you may be doing something just a little bit wrong. Because nobody in the Bible served Jesus and didn't go through some level of trials. But Peter states here that the trials that we go through shouldn't discourage us. Why? Because again, if our hope is on things internal, on things above, we rejoice because it, what does it do? What do those trials do? It refines us just like when gold goes through the fire. Now, I don't know if some of you have ever seen what gold looks like before you get that little shiny thing on your ring or your necklace, Can you, if you haven't, throw the image up there. That's gold before that's found in the, the, the streams or in the rock. And what they do is they take that clump of what looks like nothing of worth and they melt it at a very high temperature. And then what happens is the gold, the thing that we, we see as valuable, is separated from all that dirt and other rock that may be built into it and it's purified. And what 
Peter's drawing on right now is that that's what's happening to you when you go through trials. Your heart, your faith is being purified through that process. And on the other end, your faith is stronger. Your faith is more grounded in God because you now realize and rejoice in those trials because you see it as a refiner's fire. And Peter has a unique perspective on this. We talked about what Peter, who he was and all of that, but he saw Jesus, right? He saw him hanging on the cross. He witnessed the persecution of the church right after Jesus' death. He saw a guy like Saul turn into Paul and see him become an apostle. So when Peter says things like this, I tend to take it a little more seriously because he's understanding, he's like getting on their level saying, I understand the trials that you're facing. I was rejected by my family because I followed Jesus. And that may happen to you as well. So don't see it as a negative. See it in light of the goodness of Jesus and rejoice through your trials. But I want to pause for just a minute because if you read that section again, it almost like salvation comes across in two different ways. So I want to talk about salvation for just a moment. Because there are times when you read your Bible, and here we don't just preach one verse, we preach the entire Word of God, not just like a verse here and there. So you have to really think of salvation through an entire context of the Word of God. And so when you're reading your Bible, you may see like certain phrases that make you think that salvation seems very present, the here and now, like you're saved now. So like in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it says you've been saved by the grace of God through faith. You have been saved. Acts 2, 21, those who call on the name of the Lord are saved. Romans 8, 24, in this hope we were saved. So that's almost like in a, pre- a past tense. Romans 10, 10, for the heart of one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But there are also other times when you're reading your Bible where it seems like it's in the future. Because some form, if you go to like, um, I don't know, Bible Gateway or wherever you're on the internet, and just type in the word, will be saved, and you'll see it's mentioned 18 times in the New Testament. Being saved, just tack on another seven times. And Jesus says in Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated, I could break that one down, but we don't have time for today, but you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures in the end will be saved. He uses it again in Matthew 24, 13, the same phrase. Paul says in 2 Timothy that if we endure, we will also reign with him, but if we deny him, he will also deny us. And Peter says here, in 1 Peter chapter 1, though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. So what, is, what am I saying, or what better probably what is the Bible saying about salvation, how we should look through it? Um, Look, we talked last week a little bit about faith and works and how they work together, that without faith, works is dead, or without works, faith is dead, and they're interchangeable. And if you're sitting here and you're relying on some prayer that you prayed at eight years old, or a moment you had with Jesus or the Holy Spirit, I'm going to call it like that, at some youth conference a couple years ago, or some prayer or shaking someone's hand at the altar, and you think that is it. That's all that's expected of you. And my fear is we have missed the larger point of what salvation means because it's like something with a, a, a life, like, like a death, like a life, um, a near-death experience. Have you ever had anybody who's almost died and they didn't? 
they see the world completely different. They've been changed radically. They see life with a new set of eyes. And if you've obtained salvation, if you come near to death and you've now been saved, man, you're going to see life with a new set of eyes. And if you're just seeing life, well, it just looks this thing and that's all I really need to do. And I can live my life however I want to do the rest of my life because I said a prayer at six years old and got baptized. Friend, I mean, I, I, again, <laughs> I think we need to do a better job of reading our Bibles because while I agree that those who call in the name of the Lord, salvation is now. You are saved now, and nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can pry you out of his hand. And if you place your name, you place your faith in Jesus and him alone, it's a done deal. I, I, I firmly believe that. But it also says our salvation will not be re- revealed until the time either we die or Jesus comes back. That will be the finality of our salvation. And until then, we should endure. We should press on. And there's also another implication of our salvation. One one that I think we should take very seriously, especially in today's world. Because Paul, in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, 12 through 13, says this, that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you've read your Bible, if you've heard Marshall preach, if you understand the gospel, you know that that fear cannot be based on our thinking that God is going to smite us down because we've sinned too much. That, that would be works righteousness. That would mean that God is giving you salvation not because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, it's because your ability to work for it. We know that, not, that can't be true. So why is Paul using the term fear and trembling? And why should we work this out? Well, he tells you later, because that's really helpful when the Bible tells you what they mean. But it says later in Philippians 2 that for one reason is because it's God who is working in us. But it also says so that we will be blameless and before a wicked generation. So what does that mean for us? That the, the thing that we're working out, our salvation man, that should be examples. We've got to be ambassadors of Christ in our lives, in our, our, our place of work, in our families. So on some level, that word fear, we don't like to talk about because in the Lord there should be no fear, but we should also fear the Lord. There's a healthy way to fear. It doesn't have to be crippling. But when we fear, we should ask ourselves, like, is, is this the salvation, this thing that I'm living out, this thing that I believe? Am I showing it in a way that the world desires it? Do people see my faith in Jesus the way I live my life? And do they go, okay, now that's what I think when I think of the word Christian. Right? Not the ones who are online yelling at people because they do something they don't agree with. Not the ones who are standing at school board meetings like you see today, invoking the name of Jesus so they don't have to wear a mask. That's not the ones we're talking about here. We're talking about those who are working out their salvation in a real, honest way, and the world's going, hmm, that's the, if, if I, even if I don't believe in God, hmm, that's the Christian. So our, our working is an example of something they need, and this fear is, that we have is God, like, we ask ourselves, is my faith and my salvation genuine? Does the way I live my life today reflect you 
and the version of you? Or does it reflect the version that I just want people to see? Because they made me like me a little bit more. I'll have more friends. I'll be more accepted in society. Maybe I can get that raise. Maybe I can get that thing that I really desire if I, if I don't show people I'm, I'm, I'm actually a Christian. So. Let's pick up in 1 Peter, uh, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. There's that word fear again. Throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you have been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So the verse 13, it says, therefore. So whenever you're reading your Bible or any book, I guess, but it does apply to the Bible for sure, is these transitional phrases are incredibly important. Because Jesus, I mean, Paul, I keep saying Jesus. Peter said something, and now he's going to sum it up. He's saying, therefore, these things that I just said, these foundational truths that I just talked about, therefore, and now I'm going to kind of re-unpack that or reaffirm it here. And he said, I find it interesting, though, he uses the idea of a mind three different ways in just the first couple chap- uh, verses. He says what? Prepare your mind for actions. Be sober-minded. And then he says, don't let your mind, he doesn't say mind, but it's implied, your mind be conformed by your former passions of that ignorant self. And so what I believe Peter is doing here, he's getting at the idea that we need to guard our minds. Because if, if, if you think of who, this, who Satan is, our adversary, that's where he's going to attack first. Because Satan, we give him way too much credit, y'all. Way too much credit. He can't cause people to sin. Right? He doesn't, you know, cause terrorist attacks. He doesn't cause you to sin. He doesn't make someone load up their gun and go shoot up a school. That's not Satan's authority on this earth. He's deceitful. He can get into the mind and infiltrate your thoughts and it can affect you. And then at that point, once he's done that, then all bets are off. You're open to a whole lot of things. And now you're allowing all kinds of things to get into your brain and into your psyche that then will most certainly impact the way you do certain things and how you see certain things. That's how Satan gets at you. So, I mean, think about it this way. Paul in Ephesians tells us to put on the helmet of salvation. Why would he do that? Because at least in medieval times or ancient times, helmets protect the head. And what's inside the head? Your mind. And even today, if you work in an industry area, you have to wear those little, little, little hard hats. Why do we do that? So a two-by-four don't come swinging and knock you in the head and make you silly. So we have to protect our brain. We have to protect our mind. 
And what he's saying here is like what we have to do and why we're protecting it is because we don't want the former ignorance of our old self to creep back in, thereby impacting how we see God or how God sees us. And and sometimes if you allow that old person to creep back in, the one that you think you've put to death, and you kind of, those old ways of thinking kind of come into your new revelation, your new way of thinking, affects the way you interpret the Bible. See that all the time. Somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they begin reading their Bible, and either things happen in their life and something happens, and they start reading again, and things start creeping back in, and all of a sudden, the, the truth of the Word of God is no longer true. It's very gray, and you start seeing people who begin to manipulate the Scriptures and change it to mean what they want it to say so it can fit whatever pattern that is the life that they actually want to live. So Peter says here, no, like, we have to protect our minds. Because those things you once delighted in, they're no good. They're contrary to the way that we are called to live. They're contrary to the things of God. And the implication here is if we do not act sober-minded, we do not guard our minds, we lose the hope that we have in Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus is not good enough. And that living hope that was active in our lives is now full of doubt, and it's on life support. So Peter says, look, set your hope fully on the grace that we have in Jesus. Not partially, not halfway, not just a little bit, where you're, you know, you're kind of relying on Jesus for your hope, but mainly you're relying on your job. I mean, you, you really do believe in God, and you place a level of hope in Him, but your health is far more important to you on a daily basis based upon how you react day in, day out with other people than really our hope in Jesus. Because when the trials come, we begin to be tested, what's going to carry you through to the end? Is it that job? Is it the health that you think you may have? Because at any moment, y'all, we can, there's a, we were talking about this week on the, from the pastoral staff. There's a guy that we're reading, he's written a couple books. He had a stomach pain in his stomach, and now he's got, I think it's pancreatic cancer. He's got a cancer in his stomach. I can't remember which one, but these little pains that we think and we kind of push aside, that is not a problem. That ends up being cancer. And if your hope is not in things of God and the things above, man, we're going to be wrecked. We're going to lose hope. So, last week, I'm going to kind of combine two thoughts here. Last week, we did talk about the death, and I already talked about that with the Christian walk. And so I want, I'm actually very thankful I got to preach again today because I wanted to expand on that thought. I didn't have enough time last week. Because when you begin to put things to death in your Christian life, like you've, you've evaluated your soul, you've evaluated your life, and you're like, okay, I need to put to death X, Y, and Z. And you put them to death, right? You begin that process to end it in your life. If you don't fill it with something, guess what it's going to do? It's going to get filled. If I go in my backyard right now, because it's raining and everything, and I just dig a, a couple of holes, over time, either by rain, or my dog's putting something in it, or my kid's filling it up, I don't know, it's going to be filled up with something. And so when you kill, it leaves a hole. And I think what Peter's getting here when he's talking about the idea of holiness is that if you have a hole in your life, this, this, this death, if you kill something, make sure you fill it with, with, the, with holiness. Make sure you fill it with Jesus. 
Because you ever, it's kind of funny how if you've ever like, dealt with like, maybe somebody who has an addiction, and they say, okay, I'm addicted to smoking or drinking. Let's put drinking. Let's put that one out there. I'm addicted to drinking. I'm an alcoholic. So they put that to death in their life. What do they typically do? They fill it with another addiction. They pick up smoking. They pick up overeating or something like that because they haven't filled it with more of Jesus. They haven't filled it with this idea of holiness. And he's, but Paul, Peter says, I keep getting mixed up, but he says this in verse 15, as he who is called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, I think sometimes we read that predominantly as a challenge for us to be holy and not a statement of your identity. Because holiness in the Old Testament was mostly referred to as the sacred things of God. God is known as the Holy One of Israel. Jerusalem, the holy city. The temple was considered holy. So all things related to God are considered holy. In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to the Holy One of God. And when the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a son, it says, the angel says, the son will be called holy, the son of God. And then Paul later kind of pulls that into and says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, basically, that we have become the righteousness of Christ. We have been made holy. We've been sanctified. We've now been set apart. But I don't want us to be confused here, right? As, as much as this is a statement about our identity, Peter is saying, while Jesus made you holy before a righteous God, he's also declaring that in our daily actions, our pursuits, our, our activities, our ambitions, all of our goals, all the things that we set forth in our life, that we should remain holy. And our lives should be holy as a sacrifice, as Christy was talking to this today, unto the Lord. And that our, our lives should reflect that holiness, that honor bestowed upon God. And this is the one, if I'm being honest with you, is the one that frightens me. Like, if out of all of this, I feel like I get, okay, Peter, I'm driving with you. I'm with, I'm with you here. Oh, be holy in all of my conduct. All of my conduct. Not just the, like the parts where you're in a good mood. Right? No, when you're driving down the road, you don't get to flip somebody off because they cut you off. You don't get to yell at somebody because they disagree with you. You don't get to treat people less worthy because they don't like, a, a, appeal to your sensibilities or your ideologies. No, we have to be holy in all of our actions. And I'm sitting there going, well, that's not me, though. I try. I mean, I, I really do offer my life up as a sacrifice, and I, and I do try to kill things in my life, and I, and I really have become someone over the last 10 or 12 years that I do feel that I, I have begun to put things to death, and I fill them with Jesus. But if I was going to be honest, and I was to look down at the, my life, there's a lot of things that I haven't put to death yet. There's a lot of unholy things in my life. And that scares me. I mean, is my life holy enough to be pleased unto the Lord? Am I actively with eagerness rejecting the unholy things in this world for the holy things of God? Or have I just accepted some of these unholy things as just part of a broken world? So I'm like, ah, they're fun. They're cool. So I'm going to kind of like keep them with me, but they're really unholy and they don't create holiness in my life. And this is one of those things where 
only you can answer those, right? I don't know your lies. I don't know what you do in the dark places of your soul. I, I, don't, I don't know what you do when no one else is around. I don't, I don't know. Only you can answer that. So we need to be asking, as Peter here is challenging us, is our, are our lives holy? And is it pleasing unto the Lord? Because there's these things in the, in the Bible that seem like they're contradictory. They're, I call them push and pull moments in the Bible. Something that seems very simple and clear and just that makes total sense. And then you read something later and you're like, that does not seem like it jives with this over here. One of those is the faith and works concept, that faith and works go together. We're justified by faith, but if we don't have works, it's dead. And salvation, yes, it's the here and now, but there's also this thing that we're enduring and we're waiting till Christ comes to take us home. And yes, holiness, that yes, <laughs> Jesus is, I mean, uh, uh, Peter is quoting Leviticus 19 here when he says, be holy for I am holy. So there's this expectation to be holy, even though we know we cannot live up to that demand. You can't be holy because we have sin in our life, which is why I believe Peter understands that. He's like, I don't want you to be confused. And he's, he finishes, he adds this line about knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like the lamb without blemish or spot. But we cannot offer up our lives as a ransom. We can't do it. If we attempted at the end of time to stand before a holy, righteous God and say, okay, look at my life. Here it is. Here's the list. Here's all the good things that I've done. Yeah, there's some bad things, but it's mostly good. Can I get into heaven now? What would God say? If there's no Jesus, he'd say, I'm going to cast you into utter darkness because I cannot have anything unholy in my presence. That's why Jesus had to be the spotted lamb. When he says that he's speaking backwards in time and looking at the Old Testament about holy sacrifices that made us righteous on the day of atonement. That's what he's pulling from. So he's saying that Jesus alone is your ransom. This is what you can call the atonement theory. So we needed someone to be our ransom on our sake because we could not do it. We needed something to rescue from our bondage. It's the only way. It's the one way. If anybody got the Marvel reference there, I appreciate it. And I just love these last two verses because it summarizes that hope we have. He says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. There's that word, hope, again. Our hope is not set on the things of this world. Um, our hope is not based on what we can touch and feel and taste. It's not set on what is in our banking account, most certainly, or what's not in there or something. It's not based on our health or anything else that is passing away. Our, no, our hope, our eternal hope, our blessed hope is in God who raised Jesus from the dead, and him alone. Let's finish up this chapter with uh, 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. Having purified your souls, verse 22, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and it's all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
And this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. So let's close this out. I'm closing here. Peter ends this beautifully rich theological chapter. Look, there's so many concepts. You could camp out for days. We could have an entire message series just on 1 Peter 1. But he ends this chapter by reminding us of a few things. One, that we should love others. And we hear this a lot. Love others, love others, love others, all throughout Scripture. But here he says we need to love others from a pure heart. That our love for others is not motivated by what we can get from them. This happens in church all the time. People leave churches because they feel like they were just used for their ability to serve. You ever felt that? You ever been to a church and an organization and they, you feel like that relationship you have with whoever runs the church or the, the team that you're working on and that you're only there because you're some sort of cog in the process? I hope, my prayer is that if you serve in one of our teams here at Red Hills, you do not feel that way because we deeply love people and we're not, we're not loving others because they can give us, fill a spot on a Sunday morning. We know we love others because Christ first loved us. And if we're being honest, that relationship is not two-way. It's, it is a relationship, but like we bring very little to the table. I mean, we, some of us have some skills, right? But Jesus loves us because he loves us. And God sent his son for us because he loves us, not because you're a good person, because he deeply, deeply, deeply loves you. So we should love others in the same way. And then lastly, Peter's reminding us that the word of God remains forever. And I don't think we can ever hear that enough. That the word of God, his truth remain forever. Because this chapter is the gospel message. It is the wonderful reminder of who God is and what he's done for us. It reminds us several things. One, that we are called by God, chosen, and that our salvation is being guarded not by our own deeds or actions, but by the power of God. That when trials come, we should see them as an opportunity for growth and refinement. That our hope should remain firmly planted in Jesus. That we were ransomed not by our own doing, but by the blood of Jesus. And this is the good news that was preached to you. And if we need to preach these things over our lives, like daily, preach it. If you need to preach these things over your lives to yourselves hourly, preach, preacher, like do it. Because your heart is going to want to take you away from these things. And these are the truths that we have in Jesus. And if we start to feel that old person, that old ignorant fool creep back in, Stop, prepare your mind, and set it on the eternal hope. Because that's all that we have. Because everything else is just passing away. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.